Welcome back to The Term, a podcast about the Supreme Court. After an eventful summer recess, we are back for season three, and there's a lot to talk about. I'm Natalie Rodriguez, and joining me now is our Supreme Court reporter, Jimmy Hoover. Hey, Jimmy, how's it going? It's going pretty well. Um, so I think it's it's pretty much old hat at this point to hype up you know, the Supreme Court term at this stage of the term where you have the big docket and we all say it's going to be so momentous. But I think in this case, um, there are several cases that probably warrant that description. We have, you know, the biggest challenge to Roe versus Wade in 30 years. We have a blockbuster gun rights case that would expand the Second Amendment and so much more. And we have a special guest on the show to help us break it all down. We have Supreme Court reporter Amy Howe of SCOTUS blog and her own blog, Howe on the Court. Welcome to the show, Amy. Great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. So I think most of our listeners are probably familiar with your byline and their avid SCOTUS blog readers who see you doing the live blog oftentimes. Um, But I, I don't know that they also know that you actually, in a former life, used to be a Supreme Court litigator. You've argued two cases in the court, and now you're on the reporting side. How, what's that switch like? Does it, does it feel good to, to be on the reporting side or the, in, the, in front of the lectern? Uh, it feels good to be on the reporting side. I've finally gotten to the point where I've stopped having the I am unprepared for oral argument dreams. I still have the like, you know, there's, it's the last day of school and I, I, there's a final exam I haven't studied for dreams, but I don't have the unprepared for oral argument dreams anymore. So that's a good feeling. Yeah, now it's just the is the Supreme Court going to hand a blockbuster order at you know Friday at midnight? Dreams, basically. Yes, um, and those literally come in 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 your dreams. Um, you know, I, I have two and, dogs. And too and, often reality. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, so obviously, there's some big changes afoot uh, after since the pandemic. There have not been any in person oral arguments until next week when the justices are going to be finally back in the courtroom. And I suspect you'll probably back be back there as well. Yes, it's going to be great turnout for the opening day water rights case. Uh, we are all <laughs> waiting with bated breath for for that one. But I have, I mean, I've never seen Justice Barrett in person. So, you know, the last right. time I was in the courtroom was in March of 2020 uh, wow. for the oral argument in the last abortion case, I think. Yeah, no, yeah, in the uh, June medical, June medical. Uh, like early March 2020. Um, I feel like I have like a, a totally black box, like time kind of stopped at that moment and everything in between has kind of been this like fog fugue state. And I, it's hard to make sense of like when things happened. Um, but there has been a lot that's happened over the summer. Um, obviously, it's been kind of an eventful summer recess for the court with some big orders in, um, you know, for instance, an abortion case and some Biden administration policies. But can I just ask you, Amy, to kind of set the table a little bit and talk about like where we are heading into this term in this moment in the Supreme Court's history? I know that's kind of a big question, but I'll give it to you anyway. It's kind of a Rorschach test. You know, if you're a court follower, I mean, not for reporters, but for court followers, like a Rorschach test, I think, depending on where you are on the ideological spectrum, there's like you either have a sense of expectation or a sense of dread. Uh, you know, this idea that the conservatives now have their six to three majority, and they've got these blockbuster cases that you've mentioned involving abortion and gun rights. And so the question is, what are they going to do with it? They've shown a willingness to take on these big cases. They hadn't had a gun rights case in 11 years. And the conventional wisdom was that 
They hadn't taken on a gun rights case because they weren't sure, even when they had a conservative majority, but they weren't sure that there was were five votes necessarily for a more expansive interpretation of the Second Amendment. But now with Amy Coney Barrett, they think perhaps there is, and we can talk about that more later if you want. Um, but so, you know, going into this term, they've got some really epic cases, and it seems like it's no longer a question of whether the court is going to shift to the right, but sort of how far and how quickly. And then the other thing that I feel like is going on is that more people are paying attention to the Supreme Court. And maybe that's, I mean, it's a little tricky for me to say because that's what I do for a living as I cover the Supreme Court. So of course, when I talk to people, I'm talking to them about the Supreme Court. But, you know, even like 10 years ago, it seemed like the Supreme Court would do something and people would get really worked up about it. And then the court would sort of fade into the background again until something big happened. But maybe they keep issuing these big decisions, whether it's, you know, on the merits or on the, the so-called shadow docket, and they they never really have faded away. I think some of that also, I, I mean, I'd like to get your take on this, is, is um, you know, we've had these rapid fire additions to the court, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, um, Amy Coney Barrett, and you know it almost feels like the training wheels are coming off, right? <laughs> like they they've kind of come into their groove, they've settled in, and now they're 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 ready to like you know perhaps dig deeper, take on some of the bigger issues and cases, and see where this court heads. Um, you know, do, do you get that sense as well, or do you have a different take on that? No, I think that's right. It was Justice Byron White who said every time the court gets a new justice, it's a new court. And you know, there is this sort of feeling that when they get a new justice, it takes a little while to see how it's all going to shake out, what the new dynamics are going to be. And we're going to find out now what those new dynamics are. Well, so let's let's talk about some of the particulars. We've mentioned abortion. So I kind of referred earlier to some of the activity in this space over the summer where the Supreme Court let a six-week abortion ban in Texas take effect. But that was that was a procedural decision that was not on the merits. And so while it effectively overturned Roe versus Wade in the state of Texas, it, Roe versus Wade is still on the books. Now, there is a huge case. This is the one we've been talking about. On December 1st, the court will hear Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health. This is a challenge to Mississippi's ban on abortion after 15 weeks. That's a period before a fetus is considered viable outside the womb and thus under current, the Supreme Court's current uh, abortion jurisprudence unconstitutional. So can you kind of just dive in and, and see, tell us what are the stakes of this case? Is this really the kind of huge landmark test of whether Roe versus Wade should be overturned that a lot of people are saying it is? Uh, it definitely could be. When the state of Mississippi came to the Supreme Court, they weren't necessarily asking the Supreme Court to overrule Roe and Casey. But then once the Supreme Court granted review in its brief on the merits, the state did ask the court to overrule Roe and Casey. I mean, even I think that the decision by the Supreme Court to take the case at all is significant. The last two cases involving abortion that were at the court were both cases in which the lower courts had upheld restrictions on abortions. They weren't direct assaults on Roe and Casey. They both involved these admitting privileges, whether or not 
doctors could get the rights to admit privileges at nearby hospitals. And so in those cases, the, the Supreme Court took up the case after abortion providers had asked the justices to weigh in. But in this case, the lower court had struck down this law saying, you know, it conflicts with Roe and Casey. And and the Supreme Court reached out and, and took the case. So that suggests that there are four justices who wanted to take up this question and think they've got a fifth vote uh, for a, a ruling that, that says something. Speaking of that fifth vote, it, it does seem like this is a case where there's really nowhere for Justice Kavanaugh to hide, um, where he's going to have to kind of finally throw down the gauntlet and, and 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 have a ruling on the merits of, you know, one way or the other, whether this 15-week abortion ban um, can stand. And it seems like even um, the reproductive rights groups say that, you know, there's really no way for the Supreme Court to uphold this law and Roe versus Casey. It's it's one or the other. Um, there's potentially um, ways that the abortion right can be preserved in a very narrower fashion, right? But so far as Roe versus Casey are currently fashioned, um, you know, a ruling upholding this law would effectively turn, you know, overturn that those decisions, whether or not you know the ultimate fundamental constitutional right to abortion is preserved in some smaller way. Right. I mean, the state offers a sort of a fallback argument. The one idea that it offers is the idea that the Supreme Court doesn't necessarily, if it doesn't overrule Roe and Casey, it can still uphold the law by sort of by removing the focus on viability. You know, mm-hmm. Right now under Roe and Casey, uh, there's a right to have a, con- a constitutional right to have an abortion up to the point at which the fetus becomes viable which is somewhere around 22 to 24 weeks. And Mississippi says, you know, if you if you remove the focus on viability, you just look at whether or not the law uh, imposes an undue burden. Um, and then our law can still stand. And the abortion providers say, once you get, as, as you suggested, once you get rid of viability, you really have gutted Roe and Casey, even if you don't say so mm-hmm. outright. You know, there are people who are a lot smarter than I am who say this is definitely something the Supreme Court could do, particularly in an election year, because it would allow the court to uphold the law without saying we're overruling Roe and Casey. Right, which is kind of what we've seen in in, in a lot of, it's a very strategic kind of deft move that the Supreme Court will take in a lot of these big blockbuster cases. But do you kind of agree that that this is probably going to come down to Justice Brett Kavanaugh? Definitely, uh, you know, because we know what the, the three liberal justices are going to do. You know, no matter what the chief justice wants to do, if you know, I have no doubt that he's personally opposed to abortion, you know, he may be more inclined to vote with the liberals on grounds of stare decisis. But that only gets you to four, and you you need you need five votes. So I mean, we've also seen to, to a certain extent. We saw in the Texas case the justices in the majority in that case, put their cards on the table a little bit. They, they took pains to say, you know, there are serious questions about the constitutionality of the Texas law, but they still allowed the Texas law to go into effect indefinitely. So I think another area where we're looking at to see just, you know, how far or the court will go or how the court will approach is the gun rights case, you know, the big 
uh, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin, which is um, where a gun rights group is challenging New York State's restrictions on concealed carry licenses. This is essentially the biggest Second Amendment case in a decade, um, you know, asking whether the state's denial of these these petitioners' applications um, for concealed carry licenses for self-defense violates the Second Amendment. You know, how big a deal is this? How far do you think they'll go, potentially? Uh, you know, it, I have really pretty, seem pretty, feel pretty confident that they are likely to strike down these concealed carry regimes that require you to show a special need to carry a gun. You know, so the court in District of Columbia versus Heller and McDonald versus City of Chicago said there's a right to have a gun in your home. And then for 11 years, they refused to say anything more. And I guess it was 2019, the court, before the pandemic, the court heard oral argument in another case, also with the uh, petitioner's name, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Corlett, I think it was. And that was a challenge to a New York City rule that prohibited people who had a license to have a gun from taking the gun outside the city. And even to go to a shooting range or to go to your vacation home, And that one seemed so dead on arrival that New York City changed the law so that the the real debate was about whether or not it was moot. The justices heard oral argument. And then in 2020, I think in April of 2020, they dismissed the case as moot. And Justice Kavanaugh in that case wrote an opinion saying, I agree with the decision to dismiss this case, but we should really think about taking up one of these other Second Amendment cases because there, there seemed to be a core group of people on the court who are concerned that the Second Amendment was getting short shrift. Um, But that was when Justice Ginsburg was still on the court. And they put all of these petitions up for conference. And then after a couple of months, denied them all. Uh, So, you know, this is one of these cases where we, again, we don't know what was going on behind the scenes, but we think that there were probably four votes, but they weren't sure of the fifth. But now we've got Justice Barrett, and she she'd written a, an opinion, a dissent while she was on the Seventh Circuit that suggested she was probably going to be more receptive to a broader view of gun rights than the Chief Justice. So you know they probably have a, a fifth vote, and I think the question is you know sort of what else what else do they say about their right to carry outside of your home? Right. It, it does seem like maybe this is an area again where there are opportunities for the court to kind of narrow. Uh, to, to come down with a narrow victory or a, I guess, something short of a watershed ruling saying that there's a, you know, an absolute individual right to, to carry firearms out the, outside the home and potentially tailor it to these specific licensing regimes, which I think, uh, you know, there's around six other states with, with similar laws that could be vulnerable as a result of, of a Supreme Court ruling. But do you, do you see that as maybe an option that the court will take again is something less than, you know, like a one of these watershed splashy rulings saying that, you know, in fact, a lot of these licensing regimes restricting concealed carry licenses are going to have to face strict scrutiny and potentially be, um, you know, overturned. I think it's definitely possible. You know, as with the abortion case, it, it could very well just come down to what Justice Kavanaugh wants to do. And, you know, I don't have a good read on exactly what he'd want to do. Obviously, this is, you know, 
it sounds sort of trite, we'll, we'll know a lot more after the oral argument. But, mm-hmm. you know, these cases will certainly, there'll, there'll be other opportunities to sort of move, to move the law steadily rather than, than dramatically if he wants them. So what are some other cases um, you're going to be watching this term, Amy? So the, uh, the other big case that is going to be argued probably in either December, I think January, maybe it's a case called Carson versus Mackin. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 2020, the, the court had a case called Espinoza versus Montana Department of Revenue. And the Supreme Court in a, a five to four court said that states don't have to provide pub- public funding for private schools, but if they do, they can't discriminate against religious schools just because they're religious. And this is a, an iteration on that. Uh, the question is not whether pri- uh, public schools, public funding for private schools, whether or not states can discriminate based on religious instruction. So the state of Maine has kind of an unusual system, I guess, in areas that are, are quite rural There may not be enough students to have a secondary school in a relatively compact area. So the state, uh, so school districts can arrange to send its students to another public school, to a private school, or to just to pay tuition for families to send their kids to private schools. And so this case arose when families wanted to send their kids to Christian schools. And the state said no, because they provide religious instruction. And so basically the question is, is there a distinction between religious status and religious use? Which is something that the conservative justices have wanted to kind of strike from, from you know, uh, the, the, basically the law books, that, there's, that there is in fact a distinction between, uh, you know, uh, excluding uh, some of these applicants based on their religious status or how they actually use the funds. And it's, it, it definitely seems like this is kind of the third in a, in a three-part series of this court, um, from Trinity Lutheran to Espinoza to now um, this particular case involving Maine's tuition assistance program to, to finally get rid of that uh, status use distinction. But I was actually pretty interested to, to read the briefs in this case because you have those two precedents in Trinity Lutheran and Espinosa, which obviously seem to cut in favor of the, uh, of the, of the parents here who are trying to, to, to make use of these funds. But there's also kind of a countervailing precedent in the 2004 case Locke versus Davey, which uh, I think upheld the, the exclusion of some um, funds being used for like devotional studies in that case. And I haven't seen it talked about too much, um, but it potentially could provide the court an opportunity to overrule precedent in that case. And I was reading the petitioner's merits brief, and in fact, they invite the court to do just that. And I think that's something that maybe people should be paying a little bit more attention to it, because I think it'll probably inspire a pretty fierce dissent from the liberal justices if they go that far. Yes. I mean, so Locke versus Davies, I think it was someone who was it was a college student who was studying to be a minister. Devotional theology, I think, was the, the major that he wanted to pursue. And the, the state, I think it was Washington State, said no. Um, but yeah, so it's interesting. Do they, Does the court try to draw a line and sort of cabin that off? Right. Uh, or do they overrule it altogether? Yeah, I mean, I th- <laughs> there was a lot of obviously hand-wringing over the Employment Division versus Smith decision being on the chopping block last year. 
Um, and the court found a way to uphold that very um, landmark, marquee, you know, First Amendment ruling in that case, while also delivering the victory for the uh, the um, uh, the Catholic foster care agency. So potentially, we could see some deafness at at, at play in this um, case involving the Maine tuition assistance program. Natalie, did, was there anything you have your eye on that you're kind of excited to to watch? Just kind of following up on this conversation, you know, I I feel like religious liberty cases are what we're going to kind of see a, a thread pop, continue to pop up just this morning. Um, you know, the court granted four cases. One of them involved, um, you know, a Christian uh, civics group and trying to, you know, participate in a, a flag raising and in Massachusetts that um, and they were like the one group denied uh, right. to do this and, you know, brings up re- religious liberty question. I know that there's um there's the Ramirez versus Collier case. That's Ramirez, another kind of religious yes. liberty claim from a death row inmate who wants to be able to have his pastor, um, you know, vocalize prayer and touch him in the execution chamber. So, yeah, it, it seems like a lot of attention is, I think, um, appropriately being focused on abortion and the Second Amendment. But it, it kind of seems like this term could be a pretty big term for you know, the, the cause of religious freedom in, in these First Amendment cases as well. And that's kind of a trend we've been seeing at the court in recent years, right? I think that's right. And there, I mean, there were several cases on the long conference that had asked the court to overrule Smith, you know, after Fulton, um, you know, some cases involving LGBTQ rights. And so we're sort of waiting now to see what the court does with those we're still waiting on arlene's flowers too the petition for rehearing <laughs> right right um I but they, they denied the formal petition for for cert right yes yeah um okay so natalie was there another one that you were looking at well not so much a case but uh you know before we kind of hopped on here we, we were discussing you know how there's a um justice alito's talking right now about the sh- you know, the emergency docket, <laughs> also known as the shadow docket. And I just feel like that is going to be just one other big thread here for this term. Amy, uh, you know, what do you think about where that issue might go? We had the con- congressional hearing just yesterday uh, on this issue. You know, do, do you think they might tamp down or do, do you think they just don't care and it's going to keep happening? Well, I mean, I think there, I guess there are a couple of things to say. I mean, I think they're clearly sensitive about it, you know, as evidenced by the fact that Justice Alito is A, talking about it, and B, when there was pushback against the idea that his discussion of the shadow docket was not going to be widely accessible to the public, you know, eventually they reversed course and someone agreed to live stream it. Um, but Read also, room. yeah, <laughs> yes, exactly. But also, you know, if, if we think back not that long ago, we've, you know, it seems like a, a while now, but the week after there was so much pushback to the court's ruling uh, in the SP8 case when the court didn't block the enforcement of the Texas heartbeat law, uh, the following week was the case that Jimmy referenced, the case of the Texas inmate who wanted his spiritual advisor in the death chamber, praying out loud with his hands on him. And that came to the Supreme Court uh, on the shadow docket. 
and the Supreme Court just decided to fast track his appeal. You know, it's amazing when they want to move quickly, what they can do. They granted review that night and said, set the case for argument. This was early September, set the case for argument in the October or November calendar. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I do think they're sensitive to it. You know, I think that it's going to continue to be something that they're going to have to grapple with because I think that the Trump administration kind of opened Pandora's box. You know, they came 40 times in four years and were successful 28 times. And so I think that led other people and groups to think, oh, I, you know, people who 10 years ago might- It's a handy tool. People who 10 years ago might have thought, oh, I lost in the lower in the lower courts. You know, the Supreme Court never grants these things. You know, like, for example, the some of the covid restrictions, the churches in Southern California that wanted to hold indoor prayer services. You lose in the Ninth Circuit. You think, oh, you know, that's too bad. Mm-hmm. I really like would have liked to have had my indoor prayer services, but it's Southern California. You know, we'll put some heaters up. It'll be fine. You know, but no, like we'll go to the, we'll go to the Supreme Court because why not? We've got a shot, and they win. Right. I mean, you just saw that the the Center for Reproductive or a, a number of reproductive rights groups are are actually back before the Supreme Court with a, I think, a petition for cert before judgment in the Texas case, like trying to get that kind of expedited relief from the court, and that's something that I think. Um, the Trump administration uh, was was able to do um, a number of times. So yeah, I think I've even noticed that that's even these controversial shadow docket decisions, they seem to have a little bit more meat on them than maybe exactly. like the one line orders, and maybe yeah. that's like in some way a response. No, I think that's exactly right. I think that is the next thing that I would have said if you hadn't said it first. Is that that's exactly right? I think that they uh, you know are, are tired of that criticism as well. So you know, I think that. That's probably why, you know, I I don't think that the justices can do anything about how many requests are coming to them now. I think that, that, you know, that that box has been open and they can't put the genie back in. But they, you know, in something like the the Texas heartbeat case, they're they're explaining and they've got sentences that say things like, well, you know, we, we agree there may be serious questions about whether or not this law is constitutional, but here's why we're not enforcing, we're not going to block the enforcement right now. Um, So, you know, I think that there are going to continue, you know, this is an institution that has been operating the same way for centuries. And I think this is an institution that is really reluctant to change and to acknowledge that they're changing in response to public complaints and public pressure. But I think in some ways they, you know, even if it's very subtle, they are. Okay. So, Having probably listened or watched um, a lot of the Justice Stephen Breyer uh, press and uh, television appearances, have you gleaned any insights <laughs> into his multi-part test for the question of retirement and when that will actually take place? Or is it just a complete labyrinth and abyss and we'll just know whenever he tells us? I think it's the latter. We will know when when he tells us, probably next spring slash summer. Probably next. So you think he will tell us, um, is that, is that you predicting a retirement, um, in, 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 at the end of the term, or is that you saying 
he'll say, I'm going to either stay or go. I think he will retire at the end of next term. You know, okay. I think he can, I think, you know, I think he likes to think of all of these things and all of these factors, but, you know, particularly when the midterms aren't looking good, you know, when Mitch McConnell is talking about not potentially not confirming a successor if the Republicans take the Senate, you know, I think he's also, when push comes to shove, a realist. With this in mind, um, you know, we're, we're flash forwarding to July 2022. Um, kind of round us out here. Has the politicization of the Supreme Court gotten better, worse, stayed the same? What's your prediction? I think it'll depend. I think it'll depend a lot on the decisions. I mean, and I guess the question is from whose perspective? I think from the public's perspective, it'll depend a lot on the decisions that the court issues. I think if they issue decisions that break down very closely on ideological grounds, um, then I think they like, you know, the justices like to talk about how the, the court is not partisan, the court is not politicized, that they make these decisions based on their judicial philosophies. And I believe that they make these decisions based on their judicial philosophies. But the problem that the court has right now is that the judicial philosophies align pretty closely with sort of the outcome that political parties are going to want in a lot of these high-profile cases. And the public looks at, you know, five, or six Republican appointees on one side and three Democrat appointees on the other side. And, you know, this may be a little bit too subtle. Um, you know, they, they, the, the public is fairly results oriented. And so it, it looks political to them. So I think it's, it's going to depend on the decisions. I mean, I think that there, it will depend on how politicians react to those decisions on both sides of the aisle. Um, and I think it'll depend on external factors. You know, are, what if the efforts at court reform looked like? Are, we, are people still talking about expanding the court or adding, um, at, not just adding justices, but adding term limits for justices? Yeah, it, it definitely seems like there are a lot of variables that will all be uh, watching this term. Um, the term or the the justices are formally uh, hearing arguments uh, starting on Monday for the October twenty. 2021 is that what year we are in now yes no we're still in 2020 yeah it's just like i've lost all sense of time space continuum um but thank you so much uh for for joining us amy it was a pleasure to talk to you and yeah we'll be we'll be reading your stuff and and following your tweets as as we dive into this pretty action-packed term great to talk to you thanks so much for having me like to thank our producers and editors Stephen Trader and Kelly Marcano, our executive producer Amber McKinney, and our special guest Amy Howe. Music for the show comes from Slender Beats. For more information about all the high court action, please go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search Law360 in the term. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. And oh, please write us a review. <laughs>